0: Hi there. This is Steph. Liz and I wanted to let you know that our conversation with Molly Gebrein is going to be a two-parter. We realized there was so much good information in our talk that to try and squeeze it all into a single episode just wouldn't do it justice. And we agonized over whether to cut parts out, but in the end, we just couldn't do that to you. So you'll hear the first part here and the second part in another episode, which will be available in the new year. We truly loved this conversation, felt so inspired, and we hope that you do too. Happy holidays. Stay safe, and we'll see you in 2022.
1: We are on our one-year anniversary of the podcast. Today is when we released our very first episode last year. Yep.
0: Crazy. It is crazy. That it's been a year, but it's only been a year, but it's been a whole year. It feels like short and long. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) but happy anniversary. Happy anniversary.
1: Welcome to the Viola Centric Podcast. We are two curious violists creating a safe place to have authentic and challenging conversations in the professional music world. I'm Liz.
0: And I'm Steph. Let's jump in the deep
1: end. There's this place about a block and a half from my house that's called La Cocina, and it's culinary training. People whose English is not their first language, hmm. and I think it's a nonprofit. Anyway, they have a cafe, and I got a coffee from there today, because I needed to walk. I needed to get out and walk. And it is delicious. <laughs> it's reminding me that Starbucks really isn't that good. It really isn't. I'm sorry, Starbucks.
0: They have a lot of variety. Yeah, and each time they come out with something new, I'm like, oh, now I'm gonna really like Starbucks coffee. But it's never like life changing.
1: No, that's right. It's not life changing. I mean, this was made with love. Aww, I don't know that my Starbucks cappuccinos are always made with love. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Maybe after they unionize, they'll be made with love. Hot takes. <laughs> The thing
1: about Starbucks is convenience, right? hmm
0: drive through a lot of places. Yeah, the drive through or the mobile app. Mm-hmm.
1: That mobile app is an addiction. Yeah. It's a problem. But it's funny. I don't think it took me any less time to, like, walk to my local place and get this delicious cappuccino than it would take for me to order it on the app and drive the three, four minutes down the road to my Starbucks and pick it up and walk out. It's crazy. It's crazy.
0: Yeah. But also, you live in Arlington. You can walk to a coffee shop. Right. I cannot walk to a coffee shop. I know, not everyone has that luxury. So often when I use the Starbucks app, I'm on my way to a gig and I'm like, oh, I don't have time to make coffee. I will order one, grab it on my way, and go.
1: Yes. I'm also in this tricky situation right now because things have to be very convenient for me to do them at home. It has to be exactly the way I want to do it or I won't do it. So, with relating this to coffee. I always used a single cup French press to make my coffee. I love it, I have a routine with the French press. I set the timer and I do certain things and it's like a whole thing. But I broke my single cup (laughs) French press and now I can't find a single cup French press anywhere.
0: You need to get you an AeroPress.
1: I remembered your AeroPress. Mm -hmm. That came up in my search.
0: Yeah. And then if you want to go camping, then you're all set because all you got to do is bring your French press. <laughs> I mean, you're an AeroPress.
1: Yeah. So for all those
0: times that I'm going to go camping. <laughs> that's like one of their big selling points. And I'm like, never would I buy this to go camping ever. <laughs> you're
1: more likely to take it on a camping trip than I am though with your girls.
0: You know what I do though? I bring That's true. But I do bring <laughs> it like when I have out of town gigs. So to make it in the hotel room. Why not? You're so smart. That's so smart. It's way better than that hotel coffee. Bed Bath & Beyond, baby. But I could go like to Target and buy it. I don't know if they have it at Target. I know they have it at Bed Bath & Beyond.
1: Oh, Bed Bath & Beyond. Okay. Yeah. Is that what you just said? Yep. Oh my God. I'm all over the place.
0: (laughs) Have you had your coffee yet? (laughs) I'm
1: drinking it. I'm working on it. I have to tell you this too. Actually, yesterday and today is one of those things where... I've made a list of all the things that I need to do for everything. My own stuff, stuff here in the house, getting ready for the holidays, all the various work things. Wow. This morning when I was going out to get the coffee, I was looking at this list and I'm like, I don't even have time to do the things I want to do today. And I was doing this. I was like literally throwing a temper tantrum (laughs) And, and my husband is just standing in the kitchen like making his bacon and eggs, listening to me rant and rave about how stressed I am. And I stormed out to go get my cappuccino. And I was listening to Incubus on I, I was listening to this like angry music uh. on my walk. Storming up to the cappuccino place. And it suddenly dawned on me that I'm wearing these like loungy sweatpants my friend gave me that literally say <laughs> they literally say cranky pants on the-
0: <laughs> You were wearing your cranky pants. While while, while throwing cranky. a different- <laughs> that's amazing is that causality do you think you were yes. cranky because you were wearing the cranky pants pants
1: i put it into the universe <laughs> no though the crankiness was before the pants it's
0: because i have no laundry oh <laughs> well see th- this is like a cascade of yes. reasons why you're cranky <laughs> oh it feels good to laugh about it
1: <laughs> oh it was not funny an hour ago
0: <laughs> so here's a, here's the question is this feeling of crankiness better, worse, or the same than the feeling of overwhelm not knowing what all the things that you have to do, and them just like occurring to you at random times? That's a really good question, and
1: I think it's probably better, but what's happening I think is that I'm actively trying to avoid my normal coping mechanisms for like overwhelm, which often involves kind of shutdown, you know, like mm-hmm. escape of some kind. So I am being mindful of the instinct I have right now to kind of pull the covers over my head. And instead, I'm leaning into trying to figure out how to actually solve the stressors rather than hide from them, which I believe is causing the crackiness.
0: Well, you're getting out of your comfort zone. Totally. Into your discomfort zone.
1: It's so true. I hope it's growth. Because it's just not sustainable to keep doing it. The overwhelm part. Mm-hmm.
0: Not working. Mm-hmm. I love the idea that there can always be growth. It can always be evolving forward. Yep. And that's why I love learning so much and reading mm-hmm. so much. It's just understanding that there's always more to know. And there's always an improvement that you can make in some area of your life. Or something that you can understand better. Yeah, I love that evolution. Mm-hmm. I think it's part of. It has to do with what we chose to invest most of our time in music, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. just that at times frustrating perfectionistic bent to what we what we do. That we're always aspiring for something. It's never perfect. It's never fully formed. Yeah, which you know has a bad side, but it also has a good side in that you're always growing. Yeah, as long as you're kind to yourself. And understanding that you are not a perfect being, mm-hmm. but you can strive for something closer to what you imagine in your music. I love that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You guys are going to hear Molly Gabriel in this episode, and I just eat up this kind of information, newly discovered things, newly discovered connections that she's making on how we learn, how our brain learns, and how to use that information in a practical way in your practice or in your life. And I just love all these little tips that we got from her because I've been using them. And I'm here to tell you that I love them. (laughs) They're working for me. Yep, I had a conversation with my quartet yesterday,
1: actually. It was kind of a tag from the week before we were working with our string quartet intensive The youth members of our program, and giving them sort of a big talk about attitudes during rehearsal, what works, what doesn't, how to communicate effectively. I mean, these are skills that are incredibly useful in every facet of life. Mm -hmm. But I was reminded of one of the things that Molly shared with us, which I won't give away because it's in the episodes. But it was just really interesting because I said, I just learned this little bit of information that might be helpful for us in our own rehearsals going forward too, in order to process information. And it was sort of, we all sat there for a moment. We're like, yeah, why don't we do that more often? It was just really interesting. So I can't wait to put that into practice there too. I totally agree with you. And I just absolutely love that there is this growing interest and dedication to understand, really understand how our brain works and how that translates to
0: music. Mm.
1: Boy, is it fascinating. And it validates some of my struggles
0: yes right yes there's a point in there that i come to this like epiphany about the way that i have been thinking that one of my struggles was unique to me (laughs) but it is in fact just the way that one's brain learns yeah and so it you know made me feel a little lighter after that a little more graceful with myself yes you know that it's not just me
1: absolutely
0: there were a lot of things we talked with Molly about. One of them was about how she teaches, mm-hmm. oh, teaching yeah. her students and the struggles that teachers go through helping people learn. Yeah. Discovering things through trial and error with her students yep. and just through her research.
1: Yep. We've got the holidays coming up and we're going to take a little breather in between the holiday weeks.
0: So please enjoy this excellent episode with molly Gabriel,
1: and we wish you the happiest of holidays and a happy new year we'll see you in 2022 when our friends tigran and aaron designed the arcrest they were trying to design a shoulder pad that lets you move freely and that didn't dampen the sound of the instrument but they shared with us that at first they actually didn't realize one
0: of the biggest benefits adjustability Did you know that you can place the arc rest just about anywhere on the back of your instrument within reason? <laughs> and in fact, Liz and I have our arc rests in completely different positions. And that makes sense because we have completely different bodies. That's right. The arc rest is adjustable to
1: fit your body, your playing position, your instrument. You can find what position works best for you, and even if you make changes to your setup or instrument,
0: the placement of your arcrest will change with you. It's really simple. Mm-hmm. And you can mess around with it as much as you want. Yeah. If you're ready to give it a try, or if you want to know more, find Tigran and Erin at thearcrest.com. That's T-H-E-A-R-C-R-E-S-T.com. Hello all, Liz and Steph here. As you know, Liz and I choose our sponsors because we really and truly value authenticity. We can talk most easily about things that we love and use regularly, which is why Potter Violins is such a natural partnership. Yes, Steph
1: and I both have been taking our violas to Potter's for years because we know they're a shop that really knows about violas. Their luthiers are some of the best in the country, and I trust them
0: completely with my wooden baby. And not only that, but I'm actually bow shopping right now, which can be overwhelming. But I always go to Potters first because I trust them to help me find the perfect one for my instrument and playing style. Yep, both Steph and I found our violas
1: there. Bottom line is that we both love the Potters team, and we're thrilled to welcome them as a Season 2 sponsor. If you're interested in learning more about what they offer, you can find them at potterviolins.com and at potterviolins on Instagram. You know, it's the funniest thing in the world. I feel like I know you already. I know. Even though we've never had a conversation just through like the viola world.
0: And while I'm watching your videos, I'm like, oh, she's, this is my friend Molly.
1: You
2: know, it's funny because of the videos. I've gotten a lot of emails from people who want to do like a one-on-one coaching or consultation or whatever with me, which is great. Obviously we do it on Zoom and they're like, whoa, this is like watching one of your videos, but it's live. (laughs) You can't pause you. (laughs) Can't go back fifteen seconds to hear what you said again. Again. Yeah.
1: That's right, Molly.
0: I need I need some coffee. Let me go back. (laughs)
1: I love that so much. (laughs) Our guest today is Molly Gebrien, a violist who has distinguished herself as an outstanding performer, teacher, and scholar throughout the United States and Europe. One of her biggest passions is understanding how people learn and experience music, which has led her to collaborate on neuroscience research with leading scientists on music and the brain. She has extensive knowledge that she shares on her YouTube channel online, And it's dedicated basically to helping musicians practice more efficiently. In 2019, she joined the faculty at the Fred Fox School of Music at University of Arizona as assistant professor of viola. And you have so many other accolades that we can share in this time that we talk together. It's just so wonderful to have you join us on the Viola Centric Podcast, Molly. Thanks for
2: being here. I'm so happy to be here. I'm so excited for this. Yay! Yay! Us too.
1: So I have this funny personal connection to you because currently my father is also teaching at the university of arizona oh really yes what does he teach so i'm so curious to know if you have any knowledge of even that this program exists but he is a professor through the racetrack management program that's a thing wow okay (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so there, there's your answer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I guess the, the worlds don't collide too much, do they? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, we were laughing about this so hard. I was just Facetime with this morning. So at the University of Arizona, this is a really interesting thing. They have this industry funded program for horse racing, and it's in the Department of Agriculture. My dad actually got his degree from U of A, and his degree is in animal sciences. <laughs> so He loves to tell everyone that he's an animal scientist, that that's like a
2: thing he knows how to do. That's funny. You know, I started here in the fall of 2019. And then the pandemic started in 2020, right? So I had one normal semester. And because it was my first semester here, I didn't do anything outside the music building because I was getting like situated here. And then the pandemic happened. And so I spent the last year and a half inside my house. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know really anybody outside the music building. I don't know any buildings outside the music building. Like I don't (laughs) know anywhere else on campus. So yeah. You're the worst
0: person to run into on campus to ask directions from. Well,
2: definitely. I know where nothing is. I know how to get to the music building, and that's pretty much it.
0: I would be genuinely shocked, even if
1: you were on campus for the last year and a half, that you would know about this program. (laughs) That's true. It's very small, but they do. He's very excited because they have this big symposium going on in the next week. And he gets to see he was in management his whole career. And so he gets to see all these colleagues of his. And I will also say at some point, you may see him lurking around the music building because he is an aspiring guitarist. Nice. He picked up guitar when I was like 18. And he practices himself like two hours a day. Every day he plays the guitar. And he's like, I might try to go see if I could snag a practice room at the music school. I'm like, I don't see why not, Dad. Like, just go over there. (laughs) So maybe one day you'll run into him.
2: That's right. Okay, I'll keep my eyes out. How is it teaching there? So spring 2020, obviously, everybody was doing everything online. So the 2020-2021 school year, I was also 100% online, as were most people at the university. And then this fall, I went back to teaching in person in October some of my students have preferred to stay online and that's totally fine with me. So some people, we have online lessons. Studio class every week, there's a Zoom contingent and there's an in-person contingent. And it's been nice to have that flexibility, actually, yeah, yeah. that students can attend however they want.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: What I didn't mention in our intro of you is that you have degrees not only in performance for music, but also neuroscience, right? which gives you this really unique and I think extremely important perspective in our world. I would imagine there are not many of
2: you out there, are there? No, I mean, there are other people that have backgrounds similar to mine. I don't know any other violists who have exactly the same background as me, but there are definitely other people that have backgrounds in cognitive science of some sort and music performance of some sort, but there aren't a lot of us. What started you on that journey? When I got to Oberlin, where I went to undergrad, I knew I wanted to double major in something because academics and school had always been really important to me. And that's a big part of the reason I wanted to go to Oberlin because they make double degree so easy. Mm. But I didn't know what I wanted to major in. I was thinking, maybe I'll major in Spanish or maybe I'll major in Russian literature. Like I have so many interests. And then my first semester of my freshman year, there was this freshman only like neuroscience class that looked really interesting in the course catalog. And I was like, okay, I'll sign up for that, you know? And after the first week of class, I was like, okay, this is the hands down the most fascinating thing I've ever learned about ever. I want to major in this. And at that time, the neuroscience major was called biopsychology. It was bigger, like credit number wise, by a very large margin than any other major on campus. And I was like, is this a really bad idea, double degree and make your other degree like the biggest possible major you could do? But there was a violist in my studio, Jeremy Waterman. I don't know if you know him. He lives in the Pacific Northwest now. He was double degree viola and biopsychology, and he was a couple of years older than me. We had lunch together one day, and I was like, I'm thinking of doing this. Am I crazy? And he's like, no, 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 go for it. It's awesome. And I was like, okay. And so that was that. I didn't plan to continue with it after Oberlin. It was just like, oh, this is fascinating. I'm going to study this as an undergrad. And graduation from Oberlin was supposed to be the end of it. But obviously, it was not.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You're helping to make change in the way that we think about teaching and practicing and What a novel concept, but also it shouldn't be, how our brains work with music.
2: Yeah, (laughs) totally. There's this book that I love called NeuroTeach. It's written by two high school teachers. They're not musicians. Basically, this book is applying the science on learning to teaching. And they say in the introduction something along the lines of, if you are teaching and you don't understand what the brain does, like, what are you doing? (laughs) That's what we as teachers (laughs) are. Are impacting is the brain. If you don't understand how the brain learns, like, how can you possibly teach, right? Yeah. Seeing it laid out so starkly like that, I was like, oh, yeah, that's a good point.
1: Yes. And it just made my head explode in a way because when you take it to the subcategory of teaching music, especially in a situation where you may be someone's private instructor or something outside of having a teaching certificate through music education degree, you're not trained
2: to teach. Right. I wasn't trained to teach. Nope. Yeah, it's really, I mean, I have very little training in how to teach also. Like I did Suzuki teacher training one institute at a time. And as part of my doctoral work in Viola, we had to take a classroom pedagogy class to learn how to teach theory or whatever, but it was just one semester. And that's pretty much all of my education on how to teach. That's weird, right? (laughs) That shouldn't be the way, but it is. And that little bit. Of instruction I got on how to teach is like way more than most people, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. That's not okay. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And what you're able to impart with your students is it gives them like the insider scoop on how to make things work. Totally. So do you find yourself using your students as like kind of guinea pigs?
2: Oh, well, 100%. <laughs> <laughs> I teach viola pedagogy in the fall semesters here. And I say to my students all the time, the only way you really learn how to teach is to teach, right? You can have all this great knowledge and input on what good teaching looks like, but you really only learn it once you start to do it. And you have to experiment on your students. And every semester, there's a student who's like, Do you experiment on us? I'm like, Yeah. (laughs) All the time. Every student is different, right? You don't know what's going to work for an individual student. So, in that way, of course, you have to experiment to find what works for that student. But sometimes there will be some playing issue that comes up over and over in students that seems to just not get solved very easily. And so, as a teacher, you're constantly trying to find new ways, and sometimes you'll have a brainstorm like, huh, I wonder if this would work, and you try it in a lesson, and it works really well. And you're like, ooh, interesting. Okay, I wonder if it's just that person it works for, or like, everybody.
0: Oh, I love the scientific method in your teaching. That's great. So trying things and experimenting on and with your students leads to further innovation. It's so great because often I think teaching can kind of feel like an isolating kind of experience. And you know that there have been teachers before you who have solved these problems, but there's no like giant database of, <laughs> okay, a student has this problem. Do this. Try this, 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 this. So you almost have to reinvent the wheel, it feels like.
2: Right. There are certain things that you learn like, yep, this is how you solve this left-hand problem. Mm-hmm. or This is how you solve this bow problem. But there's always going to be unique problems that come up. And there's always going to be unique students for whom your normal way of teaching something doesn't work for them. Mm-hmm. And then you have to come up with what else works. And sometimes coming up with something else is better than how you've been mm-hmm. teaching it to everybody else, even though it worked <laughs> fine for everybody else. Now you have a better way of expressing a concept, you know, for future students.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's
1: so great. There's so many things that are coming up for me. Like, this idea that the only way you get better at it is by doing it. yeah. And I do think about it in my own limited experience of having a private studio for the last 15 years of my life. Oh my goodness. I mean, I'm definitely a significantly better teacher than I was 15 years ago.
2: Oh, totally.
1: And I don't know if a degree would have necessarily changed that because I think practical experience is so important it's so funny. I'm also thinking of my dad in this situation, just because he never taught a day in his life. And he did the entire thing on Zoom last year, too. And so I just keep saying to him, like, you have all this practical experience. That's what students can learn from.
2: Totally. And what you said about your dad having practical experience that he can bring to the classroom. I mean, I am constantly discovering things in my own practicing Yes. that, oh, this works really well for me. Okay, share it with my students. And that's why I think... It's really important for teachers to continue playing and performing because if you are a good musician, you're constantly learning and working on yourself and you can bring that to your students.
0: And speaking of bringing practical real world experience to your students, what's the blend of majors that you have there? Are they all education? Are they performance?
2: Yeah, it's a really big blend. So I have undergrads, I have master's students, and I have doctoral students. So we have a whole bunch of different levels. And then amongst the undergrads, it's a mix of performance majors, music ed majors and music minors who are majoring in all sorts of other interesting things. It's a really big mix.
0: We're talking with people who are in academia, lately, and I really feel like the world of applied performance, teaching, and making a career in music has really vastly changed over the last like even five to 10 years. Mm -hmm. So how are you preparing these kids for the actual real world that's literally changing before our eyes right now? Orchestral playing isn't gonna look the same. It isn't looking the same for Liz and I, we're in the freelance world. You're teaching online, you're teaching in person. How do you prepare kids these days for the evolving that the music industry is going through?
2: That's a great question. I think everybody's kind of like, oh, God, what we've been doing for like 500 years or whatever, like, this has to change. But institutions are really slow to change. Classical music is really slow to change. Mm -hmm. And I think this is something that we're all sort of grappling with at an institutional level, but also personally. I mean, one thing that's always been very important to me is performing music, outside the standard canon. Mm. And that is something that's a real priority with my students, too. Here at the University of Arizona, we have in the spring, we have a string solo competition where students have to play something for unaccompanied, whatever their instrument is, but it has to have been written since 1950. Nice. And starting this year, there will be a requirement that the composer has to be from a traditionally underrepresented group. In the past, many of the pieces did fit that second requirement, but we're making that official. And I very strongly encourage my students to do that competition every year, and many of them do, actually. And the ones that have done it, it has really changed their view of music just through the piece they learned for that competition. I also, when I have students who have outside-the-box ideas that they want to explore, my answer is always yes. Hmm. So one of my students during the pandemic discovered loop pedal music, specifically the music of Jessica Meyer and Catherine Patricia, who's a Canadian violist. Mm -hmm. And she was like, I want to do this. I was like, great, let's do it. I know nothing about playing with loop pedals, but let's do it. And at the university here, we have small grants that students can get over the summer to fund kind of whatever they want. They have to do a proposal and stuff like that. And so she wrote a proposal at the end of last year to buy the equipment because it's expensive to buy like a mic and an amp and the loop pedal. And so her project was getting the technology and then basically teaching herself how to do it over the summer. And that's what she did this past summer. Her first performance in studio class was playing a a piece by Jessica Meyer that she had learned. And everybody in the studio was like, what is this? This is so awesome. Like, I want to do this, you know? And so whenever I have students that have ideas like that, that are totally outside the norm, I know nothing about playing with loop pedals. So outside of my education, my answer is yes, because as musicians, we need to be able to have that flexibility and chase down our interests, even if they're outside. And I think in an institutional setting, if we tell students no it discourages them from doing that in the future because they feel like, oh, well, maybe I shouldn't be doing this.
0: Mm-hmm. I love that so much because I feel like the way that the music industry is going is a lot of creating your own path yeah, and putting your individual stamp on things. And I hate to bring this to social media, but that's what everyone's immersed in these days. And the way to brand yourself in social media is to do something that's unique that nobody else is doing. And I think that's going to last for a little bit.
2: Yeah, it's been interesting in the pandemic watching what's been happening on social media, because there has been a lot of people branding themselves, as you said, sometimes in good ways, and sometimes not in good ways. Mm-hmm. The good ways are, I'm really interested in this. I want other people to be interested in this. Social media is a great tool to sort of get this out into the world. Yep. Yeah, Let me share with people. The not good way is how can i monetize my life and be predatory and charge people a lot of money for something that i'm not maybe super into but like i see that i can make a lot of money like Mm. this like that's just gross to me
1: Mm -hmm. yeah oh it's terrifying there's a lot of that yeah yeah there's a lot of that that's for sure steph and i have had extensive conversations about what our relationship is with social media and we're very careful about what we craft on there because the last thing you want to do is get to a point where it feels like you're just doing something for social media. Exactly, It's a difficult line to walk. And I think that this idea of engaging your students to be thoughtful about what it is they're most interested in on a personal level, then they take that to social media and it's authentic, right? Right. <laughs> so that's really an interesting. Yeah, I love that you brought that up though, Stephanie, because we don't really talk much about the relationship we have as artists to social media and what it can do for us but also Molly to your point that it can also go the wrong way and yeah. mm. it's just a constant learning experience i feel like every step of the way oh, I'm just,
2: totally.
0: just sitting with what works what doesn't it's a tool that's out there and people are going to use it yeah. yep. so we have to learn how to rein it in and use it for the best way considering how it's designed totally and stay human yeah <laughs> yep yep <laughs> and not
1: turn into avatars like Meta wants us to. (laughs) Hot takes. Hot takes right here. (laughs) Okay, I want to just circle back for one second because I had this feeling that came over me as we were talking about this because I'm just so jazzed that here we are talking to a professor Viola in a big music school at a big university who is encouraging her musicians to really like explore their unique interests. How do you rein in all of the, like, technical elements? Is it still, like, wildly important to have those kids also playing Kreutzer and don't and doing these things at the same time? And how do you thread that needle with
2: them? My students would laugh at this question. So... For the different degree programs, for undergrads only, for the different years in the degree programs, they have certain technical requirements they need to make, like all oh, your three octave scales, you know, blah, blah, blah. And there isn't time to hear all of that in lessons all the time. Right. You could spend a whole lesson just on technique stuff and like never get to music. That's no fun. Been there. <laughs> and so all of them have a Google sheet I've set up with all of their technical requirements where they have to video themselves playing and upload the video. And I watch it and give comments and they watch it and give comments. So yeah, my students would laugh because the technique videos thing is something in the studio that everybody has to do. Everybody knows. They all understand why we do it. They all agree that it's important and it's a really good way to make sure they're doing their technique, but they all hate it too, because who likes to record themselves <laughs> playing a C major scale? You like play it and you're like, God, that was so out of tune. Okay. I got to do this again. So we do all the standard technique that everybody does. My solution so that it doesn't take all of the lesson time has been to move it online. I love that. That's brilliant. I wish one of my students were here so they could chime in and be like, it's horrible. <laughs> but it's been great because, I mean, there's video evidence. No, it's not in tune. Or look, your bow is super crooked or like whatever. And they can see that in their own video. Like, oh, God, you were telling me in my lesson that, you know, my bow's all over the place. My bow's all over the place or, you know, whatever it is. <laughs> And then the Google Sheet, they have the same one for all four years. And so it's also a record. When you're a senior, go go look at your freshman videos. See how far you've come. But it also helps students learn how to record themselves. So they're like framed in the thing and the audio sounds, but isn't peaking every two seconds so you can actually hear the pitch. Basic audio video skills like that, which I also think are increasingly important.
0: Totally. So key.
1: I don't even remember being encouraged to record myself in college.
0: Oh, No. No, well, there wasn't really a practical way.
1: It wasn't a thing.
0: And yeah,
1: it's just amazing to me. I'm thinking about how many lessons I spent just working on technique in undergrad Mm. only. That's all we would have done. To move it to video, it's so incredible because yes, you're introducing the understanding of that technology. But also, you're basically putting a lot more responsibility in the students hands to prepare it.
2: Yep. Mm-hmm. As a teacher, I'm incredibly patient. And I'm totally willing to let students do it their own way, even if I know it's not going to work and fail. So they can see why that way doesn't work. Yes. Yeah. I talk to students like whatever scale I assign you, you need to practice it every day. And at the end of the week, you need to record it for your lesson. But I know for a fact that students don't do that. <laughs> and they'll just practice it all on the day they record it, and then like it doesn't work. I just kind of wait around until they are like, this isn't working. And they come to a lesson and they're like, my technique videos, it's really stressful. It takes forever. I'm like, well, how are you preparing for these? We were talking about practical experience, right? You can talk to somebody till you're blue in the face, but they only really get it until they've experienced it themselves. Yeah. Yep.
0: This is ringing all the parenting bells in my head.
2: Oh, 100%. I I think that's part of why a lot of people find teaching very frustrating, because I think a lot of people think teaching is, you tell a student something, and they do that thing. No, (laughs) that is absolutely not what teaching is. The bassist, Michael Klinghofer, he's an Israeli bass player, he says people go into teaching because they like to say the same thing over and over and have nobody listen to them. (laughs) And that's really funny, and it's sort of (laughs) accurate. But The job of a teacher is to help a student learn, and often learning is experiencing failure and seeing, okay, well, that doesn't work. What should I do instead? I'm very happy to sit back and allow that process to play out because I know that that's how learning happens. Yeah,
0: 100%. Yeah, so in parenting, there's this thing called natural consequences. Yeah. And (laughs) (laughs) so my daughter doesn't like to wear coats, and it's starting to get cold. And there's only so much fighting you can do with a child. Uh, She's nine. She's stubborn. She's probably just like I was when I was that age. Probably. (laughs) The universe is getting me back. I have to let her go out in just a sweatshirt in 35 degree weather because she'll never admit it. Right. She'll never admit that she was wrong and that she needs to wear a heavier coat. But, you know, natural consequences. You make mistakes. You learn the consequence of that mistake. And then I can guide her in that same direction again. And maybe this time she'll take the advice. And I just now made that connection to teaching. And it's kind of a nice reminder for us teachers, because sometimes if a student comes back to you week after week, and they're having the same problem, and you feel like you're correcting the same mistake over and over, naturally, I go back to what am I doing wrong? Yeah. What mistakes am I making in my teaching that I'm not speaking to this child the right way? And it's reassuring to know that it is just trial and error, that it is just try this thing and then repeat the same thing over and over, just like it is in parenting.
2: (laughs) Right. I do the same thing. If it's the same problem every week, clearly, I obviously don't understand why I'm communicating in a way that is not effective. Mm. I had a situation with a student this week where it was the same issue that had come up repeatedly for like way too long, especially for the level of the student. And I just said, I feel like we talk about this specific issue a lot. I feel like I've given you a lot of tools for solving this issue. I feel like in the lesson, you understand the issue and together we're able to solve it. But then the issue keeps persisting. Mm. Where's the disconnect? Mm. From your perspective, what is the issue here? And we actually had a really good conversation. And the student was able to tell me, yes, I understand. Yes, I know I'm supposed to do this, but I'm scared to do that.
1: Mm.
2: Because I'm scared of making a mistake. And so it's easier just not to and then have you help me in the lesson. Now I understand what the problem Mm -hmm. is. It isn't that you don't get it. It isn't that you don't know what you should do. It's a psychological thing. Yes. Okay, that's a different problem that we need to work on.
0: I'm so curious how you worked on that with that student because having that fear of making a mistake is something that is not just happening in music. It happens. I bring this back to my daughter. She's so hesitant on doing math. Mm. And it's that lack of confidence, that worry about making a mistake. I don't know. I know that I've never scolded her. I don't feel like I've ever had a teacher who shamed me for playing out of tune or anything like that. But how do you go about talking to your students about I'm scared to make a mistake?
2: I think that That's a really big cultural standard that even though you've never shamed your daughter for Mm -hmm. getting a math problem wrong, Mm -hmm. that's a cultural message that we are fed all the time. Mm -hmm. I remember reading, I don't remember if it was an article or a book or whatever, but some journalist was observing a classroom in Japan and they had students go to the board to try to solve some math problem. And one of the students was struggling And in an American classroom, that would be kind of embarrassing for the student. Mm -hmm. But in that classroom, the kids were like cheering that kid on, helping him solve the problem. And when he solved the problem, they all like applauded him for sort of persevering through the struggle. And I was just so, I don't know, that scene was like, wow, that would never happen in an American school. We have this cultural stigma against struggling. Yes. That if you struggle with something, Even if you get it right in the end, if you struggle, it's bad. Struggle is bad. And if you struggle and fail, well, that's a disaster. Mm -hmm. But failure and struggle is literally the only way you can learn. If you can already do something and it's easy, then there's nothing to learn. And your brain is like, yeah, we got this. (laughs) Everything worked out. But if you're struggling with something or you can't do something, there's a mismatch between what you're doing and what you want. Just to be very concrete with music, if you're playing a D and it's sharp, and you know that it's sharp, there's a mismatch between what you want and what's actually coming out of your instrument. And that mismatch is a cue to your brain to say, okay, something needs to change. If the D is in tune, there's no mismatch, and your brain is like, yep, we got it. But when there's a mismatch, that tells your brain, okay, something isn't right. We need to make an adjustment. And making that adjustment is how you learn. And so it's like absolutely necessary for learning. And I talk to my students about that a lot. And it doesn't feel good, right? It doesn't feel good to struggle. It feels very frustrating. When it happens in a lesson and I can see they're frustrated, I can see they're struggling, I say, this is the feeling of learning.
0: (gasps) Oh, I love that.
2: Make that clear to yourself. This is what learning feels like. And reframe for yourself that this feeling you're experiencing right now, that it's uncomfortable and it's not nice It's exactly the feeling you want because it means you're learning. It's not a bad thing. It doesn't mean you're a bad musician or a bad viola player or you're not smart. That's what learning feels like. And reframe that feeling as what you're looking to experience. I love that. It's a cue. Exactly. It's so
0: good. It's like a physical cue that something is evolving and changing. It's so good. I can't. (laughs) I love that so much. It's like every aspect of
1: life is that. Yep. And I think for even fully formed adults who are out there in the world, like doing their thing, I know that when I get uncomfortable in my practice room, my instinct is to shut down. Oh, yeah. That is my instinct. And this idea that I can actually sit with it, and work through it. (laughs) And that then I will solve that problem. It's just so amazing. I do a lot of this work emotionally, but I have not yet related it to the practice room. Mm. It's just so interesting for anybody else who that resonates with.
2: Yeah, totally. So every semester in my studio, we read a book together that's not music specific. So this semester, it was Peak by Anders Eriksson. And he talks a lot about in that book about like getting outside your comfort zone. And so we've been having these discussions in the studio. And I say to my students, if you're comfortable, you're in your comfort zone. If you're not comfortable, (laughs) by definition, you are not in your comfort zone, right? Because I think everybody sort of understands that in order to grow, you have to get out of your comfort zone. But I think... Even though it's obvious when you say it that way, people also don't realize that getting out of your comfort zone by definition means you are going to be uncomfortable. Yeah. Right? (laughs)
1: Like to really internalize that is hard. Exactly. Acceptance. Yep. Thank you so much for listening today. And thanks also to our season two sponsor, ARCrest.
0: Another thanks to Alto Clef Gifts, where you can purchase viola-centric shirts and mugs and a variety of other fun items featuring our beloved Alto Clef.
1: You can support our future episodes by supporting our sponsors through our PayPal link or Venmo and by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. And please consider sharing your favorite episodes with your music-loving friends.
0: Our episodes are produced by Liz O'Hara Starr. The
1: violacentric theme music was written and produced by J.P. Wogaman and is performed by Steph and myself.
0: Thanks again for listening. Let's talk soon.